committee will come to order. Uh, today, the committee will hold a nomination hearing on a very important position. Our nominee today is the Honorable Kelly Kraft, uh, currently the Ambassador for Canada and nominated to be the United States Ambassador to the United Nations. First, uh, we have two distinguished guests, uh, distinguished and celebrity guests, I might add, uh, today. And uh, they're going to introduce our nominees, so we're going to allow them to proceed with their introductions. Usually I do, Senator Menendez and I do our opening statements first, but we're going to uh, postpone because I know that uh, our guests, uh, introducers, have important business to do. Um, we're privileged uh, to be joined by Ambassador Kraft's home state senators today, uh, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. Senator Rand Paul will be here uh, soon uh, to uh, also introduce uh, the nominee. Um, Senator, Senator McConnell, welcome to the United States Foreign uh, Relations Committee, long known for its kindness and uh, to its uh, witnesses and, uh, and for civility. Your steady and thoughtful leadership inspire us all as you sail this ship through the heavy seas we encounter daily here, and we welcome hearing uh, your considered judgment regarding the matter before us today. So, Senator McConnell, the floor is yours. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Senator Menendez, members of the committee. I'm uh, really pleased to be here this morning to introduce a distinguished stateswoman and leader, and of course, a proud uh, Kentuckian. The Bluegrass is proud of this daughter of our Commonwealth. I'm confident our entire nation will be proud of the fine service she will render as our ambassador to the United Nations. Of course, most of you are already familiar with Kelly Knight Craft. Almost uh, two years ago, I came here to introduce her nomination to be Ambassador of Canada. I noted her impressive record of public service. I talked about her unanimous Senate confirmation back in 2007 to serve as an alternate representative for our delegation to the UN General Assembly. I described how her performance in that role, including her work on the new Partnership for Africa's Development, showed that Ms. Kraft is a talented consensus builder, and I predicted that if confirmed, she would skillfully manage America's relationship with our neighbor to the north. A week later, her nomination was reported favorably out of this committee on a voice vote, and one week after that, she was confirmed by the full Senate, again by voice vote. So let's talk about the past two years and the impressive record of this first ever woman to serve as our ambassador to Canada. Historically, that post is not one that is typically viewed as one of the tougher assignments in the diplomatic corps. But as it would turn out, Ambassador Kraft's tenure brought a host of tough issues and thorny questions to the fore. Everything from rethinking NAFTA to navigating real differences between Canada's leadership and our administration. The relationship was tested, and by all accounts, our ambassador rose to the occasion and did an outstanding job. On economics, she helped achieve the successful trade negotiations that culminated in the USMCA, helped secure a new chapter for the Regulatory Cooperation Council between the two countries, and defended access for U.S. businesses. On the diplomatic front, her time as ambassador has seen greater cooperation and coordination on numerous critical fronts. Canada joined the front lines of the new U.S.-led international sanctions on Russia over its actions against Ukraine. Canada's played an important role with the Lima Group, the international coalition committed to a peaceful and democratic transition, 
for Venezuela. And just recently, Ambassador Kraft spoke out forcefully when China unlawfully detained Canadian citizens. This is a record of significant achievement. It reflects hard work, careful study, and great skill. And she's won respect both at home and abroad. The current Premier of Ontario has reflected, quote, every Premier I know thanks to the world of her. She really proved herself over some tough times. That's the Premier of Ontario. And watching Ambassador Kraft's tenure, a former Canadian ambassador to the U.S. has concluded she's done the job very well. As it happens, I'm actually meeting with Prime Minister Trudeau tomorrow to discuss the USMCA. I know that our conversations will only be building on a huge amount of successful work by Ambassador Kraft to forge the path. So, Mr. Chairman, following the successful tenure from Ambassador Nikki Haley, it's vital that our next UN ambassador possess the knowledge, talent, and experience to continue skillfully advancing our nation's interests and values. So that's why I'm proud to say Ambassador Kraft is a phenomenal selection by the President. I'm proud to support her nomination, and I'm really proud to be here this morning to introduce her to all of you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Senator McConnell. We sincerely appreciate that, and we know how busy you are, so we'll certainly excuse you. Uh, we're still waiting for Senator Paul, and when he gets here, we will hear from Senator Paul. But until he does, uh, I will uh, make an opening statement, and I will we'll, uh, turn it over to Senator Menendez to make his opening statement. Today, we will consider the nomination of the Honorable Kelly Kraft to be the representative of the United States to the United Nations and to be the representative of the United States to the UN Security Council and the UN General Assembly. We welcome all of you and thank you, for, thank you uh, Ms. Graff, for your willingness to serve. As, uh, her, uh, as Senator McConnell has already given an introduction, I'll speak for just a few minutes about the importance uh, of this uh, position. Of the approximate 200 countries, the United States is by far the largest donor to the United Nations, providing 22% of the UN regular budget and 25% of the UN peacekeeping budget. Compare that to the second largest contributor, China, which pays only 12% of the regular budget and 15% of the peacekeeping budget. Clearly, the US taxpayer has been extremely generous to the United Nations since its founding in 1945. Uh, due to the United States' significant support and leadership, we have been some but not universally successful in pursuing policies which support the interests and values which are shared by many, though not all, of the countries around the world. For example, in the Security Council under President Trump's leadership, the U.S. has been successful at passing the toughest sanctions ever against North Korea in an arms embargo in South Sudan, actions that are in the interest of all human beings and our allies, not just the United States. However, the Security Council, largely due to Russian and Chinese misbehavior, has failed to make significant progress on, the, on some of the most impressing international crises. Uh, the uh, United Nations exists to ensure international peace and security, but two of its members are the instigators of insecurity around the globe. For example, Russia has repeatedly used its veto at the Security Council to shield its brutal ally, the Assad regime, from investigations into war crimes committed in this eight-year-long atrocity. And China blocks 
consensus on issues related to Burmese complicity in the violence against the Rohingya population. Because of this impasse at the UN Security Council, the humanitarian crises have only increased and become more prolonged. The UN plays a vital role in responding to humanitarian crisis. This, uh, this is where we see and urge burden sharing. While the US remains the largest donor to humanitarian crisis across the globe, the UN system pushes other countries to contribute and uses our money as a force multiplier in places such as Yemen and Venezuela. It is important that the US continue to pressure the United Nations to spend its money efficiently and effectively. The current UN Secretary General has been focused on UN reform, and I applaud this effort. It is long overdue and much needed. There needs to be robust push to eliminate waste, fraud, and abuse in the UN system. And Ms. Kraft will be looking forward to you pursuing that, which is important to many of us on this committee. In particular, we should continue to press for peacekeeping reform. While the UN has recognized and created a new Department of Peace Operations, we remain concerned about the increase in resources requested in light of the downsizing of some key missions, such as Darfur, DRC, and Haiti. While the United States benefits from being a member of the UN, the United Nations benefits more, much, much more, from the United States being a member. Ms. Kraft, I look forward to hearing from you how you can support U.S. leadership at the UN to ensure that it promotes the interests and values, especially values, of the United States and of our allies. I've received some materials in advance of this hearing. I'm going to include them in the record. I want to point to just one in particular. I have a letter of support from Gordon B. Griffin, or Giffen, who was the United States Ambassador to Canada under President Clinton. Uh, Mr. Giffen states, quote, I have no doubt that the experience gained over two years as Ambassador to Canada has prepared Kelly Kraft well for the next assignment. With that, I'll turn this over to the ranking member, Senator Menendez, for his opening statement. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Ambassador Kraft, welcome to your second confirmation for a deeply consequential position. The United States was instrumental in creating the United Nations in the post-war era, built on founding American values of democracy and human rights. Multilateral institutions like the United Nations and NATO have underpinned the peace, prosperity, and stability that the American people have enjoyed for decades. These fundamental values and international institutions, however, are under assault today from actors who seek to exploit them for their own agendas, as well as those who threaten to abandon and undermine them completely. If confirmed, you will represent the United States at an exceedingly complex time, with China's growing influence at the UN, Russian adventurism and obstruction on the Security Council, and President Trump's relentless attacks on multilateralism, undermining and withdrawing from in numerous international agreements and agencies, defunding critical UN agencies like the UN Population Fund, and cutting contributions to our peacekeeping obligations. The American people need someone with tenacity, experience, and a deep understanding of the complexities of global affairs and international institutions, who is committed to multilateralism and reforming and strengthening the United Nations not irreparably damaging it. So Madam Ambassador, let me be frank. I have deep reservations about your lack of qualifications for such a complex and challenging role. 
Historically, U.S. ambassadors to the U.N. have bought significant executive experience or experience working directly in foreign policy. Before your short stint as ambassador to Canada, I understand you were active in Kentucky and national party politics, and in 2007, you were an alternate observer delegate to the General Assembly. Furthermore, during your one and a half years as ambassador, you spent an excessive amount of time absent from Ottawa, leaving your duties to deputies. Madam Ambassador, the most fundamental role of an ambassador is to actively, presently, and wholeheartedly represent and advocate for American interests, American values, and American foreign policy. I find this staggering amount of time away from posts very troubling and an abdication of leadership. If confirmed, you would be serving alongside some of the most experienced, seasoned, and sometimes ruthless <laughs> diplomats from all over the world. We're confronting myriad challenges in the world today, including multiplying conflicts, climate change, nuclear proliferation that cut across borders, which the United States cannot meet alone. While the UN and its subsidiary bodies are far from perfect institutions, they have the power to facilitate remarkable achievements and leverage partnerships. If you are confirmed, I hope you address the following priorities. First, we must actively seek to balance China's influence. This administration's pullback from the UN risks enabling China to fill the vacuum by ceding diplomatic ground. China is eager to undermine UN human rights mechanisms and impose China's authoritarian worldview. Second, the US, I should say, the UN must be fair and appropriately condemn human rights abuses and atrocities and stop politically motivated resolutions. One of the persistent weaknesses of the United Nations system has been the bias and ugly approach towards Israel. You must use your voice to end uh, and combat these efforts. Third, the United States must pay our arrears. The UN is in a financial crisis in part due to U.S. shortfalls. For peacekeeping alone, we are $776 million in arrears. These arrears have accrued in just the last three years from the U.S. paying only 25% of peacekeeping costs instead of what we actually owed, 28%. Last week, the State Department issued its own report detailing that the U.S. refusal to pay its arrears has, quote, this is the State Department speaking, diminished our ability to pursue U.S. priorities, reduced U.S. ability to promote oversight and accountability at the U.N., reduced standing to promote the candidacy of qualified U.S. citizens to assume senior management roles at the U.N., and impaired the ability of peacekeeping missions to operate, close quote. Fourth, the United States must stop seeking to restrict access to sexual and reproductive health and human rights uh, that improve the, lights, the lives of women, girls, and communities around the world. Most recently, the U.S. egregiously threatened to veto a U.N. Security Council resolution for survivors of gender-based violence over reference to survivors' access to sexual and reproductive health care. That is appalling. And finally, the U.S. must work to shore up the U.N.'s humanitarian response system, which is under extraordinary stress. We must do so not merely because it is the right thing to do, but because it is profoundly in our national interest to do so. The United States shares the burden with less risk when we address devastating humanitarian crises through the United Nations. Our national security is strengthened when we are at the table at the U.N., and the U.N. is more effective with American leadership and values on display. So, Ambassador, I look forward to your testimony today on these pressing issues. Thank you, Senator. And now uh, we will turn
to Ambassador Kraft. Welcome. Thank you for being willing to undertake this Im uh, important engagement on behalf of uh, the people of the United States. And the floor is yours. Thank you, Chairman Risch, Ranking Member Menendez, and all members of the committee. Thank you for the opportunity to appear here today. It is a singular honor to sit before you as President Trump's nominee to serve as U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations. A special word of thanks, of course, to my Kentucky Senators, Leader McConnell and Senator Paul, for their kind words as well as their encouragement, wisdom, and support throughout my tenure in Ottawa. I would like to express my gratitude to President Trump, Vice President Pence, Secretary Pompeo, Ambassador Lighthizer, and Mission Canada for the trust they have shown me as we have worked together to strengthen our bonds with Canada and the Canadian people. I appear before you today excited at the prospect of representing the United States at the UN, but also saddened at the thought of leaving my many superb colleagues and counterparts across the northern border. Mr. Chairman, I am blessed with the most loving and supporting family imaginable. My husband, Joe, our family, Ron, Elliot, J.W. Molly, Ryan, Lauren, Kyle, Mia, Stu, Jane, and Wyatt. My siblings, Mark and their spouses, Elizabeth, my sister, Micah, and her husband, Bruce. And five of the shining stars, five out of 11 in our life, we have Jake, Kingsley, Holland, Lachland, Windsor, and our friend Fifi. When the president asked me to consider moving to New York to serve as our nation's permanent representative to the United Nations, I turned to the people behind me to ask for their guidance and to God for his. If confirmed, I would assume this position knowing that just like the Toronto Raptors and the Kentucky Wildcats, I will have a very deep bench. I would also assume this position with clear-eyed humility. I have much to learn about the United Nations, a fact I first encountered in 2007 when I served as the alternate delegate to the UN General Assembly and saw firsthand the complexity of multilateral diplomacy at this unique institution. I learned then that making progress at the UN requires constant attention to relationships, a knack for knowing the bottom line, and a belief in incremental but determined steps forward. Ultimately, I would have not accepted the President's nomination for this position if I was not certain I was ready for the task at hand. Like the President, I have had the honor to serve. I believe the United Nations is a vital institution that is at its best when free nations jointly contribute to its missions around the world. I was born and raised on a working farm where all living things were valued and treated with kindness. We were that family with a few one-eyed cats and three-legged dogs. We treasured and we protected the land and all those who worked it and walked it. My parents instilled in me a respect for people of all means, occupations, origins, and circumstances. If confirmed, those are the values that will animate my work at the UN as they have throughout my personal and my professional life. And if confirmed, I will carry with me the respect as I engage all of my 192 counterparts. 
I will also carry with me several key priorities I've already had the opportunity to discuss with many of you on the committee. Most notably, the United States must continue the drumbeat of reform at the UN. Of course, the issue of reform has been something of a mantra from members of both parties on this committee and for good reason. The UN system has grown quickly, its activities have expanded and its ambitions at times have gotten ahead of accountability. Waste and overlap remain problems. Conduct issues, including sexual exploitation, continue to surface. Hiring practices are often too opaque, and backroom deals for appointments and contracts continue. None of that is acceptable, and my voice on these matters will be heard whenever and wherever these issues arise. The United Nations needs greater transparency, and U.S. taxpayers deserve it. Reform makes the United Nations stronger, not weaker. The second priority I will take to New York is a focus on expanding the pool of resources available to the UN's humanitarian network and pushing its agencies to maximize the impact of those resources on the ground where needs are the greatest. There are numerous massive and protracted crises from Sudan to Yemen to Syria, and there are new crises that we did not foresee a few years ago, such as the four million Venezuelans that have fled their country in search of safety and sustenance. The United States has long been the world leader in supporting humanitarian aid, spending more than $8 billion a year through USAID and international organizations such as UNICEF and the World Food Program. But I also believe other responsible nations can and must do more to contribute their fair share, and I will make this point very firm and frequently. Again, the UN is stronger, not weaker, when more of its members are invested in the success of its most important work. Finally, I'm a believer in the power of public-private partnerships to unlock opportunity and spur development. If confirmed, I will take to New York a broad network of relationships I believe can fuel new partnerships and expand those with proven track records. Among my areas of strong interest for displaced populations are strengthening prenatal care services for women, improving the quality of early childhood education, and increasing the attentive challenges to elder care. The numbers are colossal, the needs are urgent, and we have a moral and practical obligation to work with other countries to address these crises. While bolstering humanitarian efforts will be a top priority for me, there is another issue of global nature that I would like to briefly address. I understand that some members of this committee have raised questions about where I stand on climate change. And though I have spoken to many of you individually about this issue, I would like to repeat my thoughts here publicly. Climate change needs to be addressed as it poses real risk to our planet. Human behavior has contributed to the changing climate, let there be no doubt. I will take this matter seriously, and if confirmed, I will be an advocate for all countries to do their part in addressing climate change. This does not mean, in my view, that the United States should imperil American jobs or our economy as a whole by assuming an outsized burden on behalf of the rest of the world. 
However, it does mean that we should promote the creativity and innovation that have made the United States a leader in tackling the challenges of our environment and while safeguarding our nation's economic well-being. Mr. Chairman, members of the committee, I believe that the United States must maintain its central leadership role at the United Nations as it should, and I say this for several reasons. First, when the UN performs, it advances key American objectives, including the promotion of peace and security. Second, without US leadership, our partners and allies would be vulnerable to bad actors at the UN. This is particularly true in the case of Israel, which is the subject of unrelenting bias and hostility in UN venues. The United States will never accept such bias and if confirmed, I commit to seizing every opportunity to shine a light on this conduct, call it what it is, and demand that these outrageous practices finally come to an end. <laughs> finally, I believe the United States must remain vigilant in constraining efforts by our strategic competitors to gain influence at our expense. I speak in particular about Russia and China, two nations with cynical approaches to the United Nations. If confirmed, I will miss no opportunity to draw attention to malign influence at the UN, to distinguish American leadership from the corrosive, underhanded conduct of those nations, and to reinforce the values, our values, that were central to the UN's founding. Mr. Chairman, the United States has been met with many recent successes at the UN, from historic sanctions against North Korea to renewed boldness in speaking out against rogue actors. There are successes that I'm eager to build upon and I look forward to working with this committee and benefiting from its collective wisdom and experience. If given the honor to sit behind the nameplate that reads United States, you have my word that I will do everything in my power to advance policy that benefits the American people that contributes to a safer, more prosperous world, and that is grounding, grounded in an unwavering commitment to universal human rights and human freedom. Thank you to all of you for welcoming me here today, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Ambassador. <clears throat> Certainly uh, uh, good words, uh, well received. Uh, we hope that uh, uh, as uh, you take this position that uh, you will particularly follow through on the reform and cost cutting that uh, is needed there. Uh, many, many people have talked about it, but little gets done, and uh, I have confidence that uh, you're up to the job. So when you go there, I hope you'll take that message uh, uh, from this committee. With that, we're going to go to a, a round of uh, five-minute questions based upon uh, the uh, arrival and uh, going back and forth between the minority and the majority party. And with that, I'll turn it over to Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you for your testimony, Ambassador. Uh, as I said to you in private and I have uh, raised here in public, I have a, a concern about excessive absences from post. Um, you gave me your commitment in private, but for the record here, do you commit to providing complete records of all of the time you spent away from post, including the cables approving your leave in your official calendars? Yes, Senator, I do commit to providing you with all the information necessary. Thank you very much. Um, and I appreciate the information you've provided, but there are a number of discrepancies. Uh, 
from October 23rd of 2017 to June 19th of 2019, uh, we have that you were away more than 300 days away from the post. It's an extraordinary number of absences. The red describes uh, each day that you were away from post. Uh, from March 21st to May 13th, uh, in that short period of time, you were out 45 of 54 days from the post. Now, there are trips listed as official travel, uh, but some of those trips that you listed as official travel, you treated while being home in Kentucky. And there is additional travel that you appear to have taken that is not reflected <laughs> in the information you provided. For example, there are several instances where you posted social media messages from places other than Canada, although there is no record of you traveling. Did you ever travel away from post without requesting approval? No, sir. We requested approval in advance of my travel and were in full compliance with my so travel. So you, you always requested and always received approval for your travel? Yes, sir. Okay. Um, so there may be explanations for all of these, but the bottom line is without the full records, we can't evaluate. So I would urge you as well as uh, the State Department uh, to provide these records so that we can move forward with uh, your nomination. Um, let me ask you this. Uh, lay out briefly for me the most pressing issues the United Nations faces, as well as areas where you believe the United States uh, should leverage the United Nations in pursuit of our foreign policy priorities. Thank you, Senator, for that question, and thank you for this conversation that we were able to have yesterday afternoon. Um, I see pressing issues as any issue that involves innocent people throughout the UN system, throughout the world, that are being abused, that are having human rights abuses. I think it's very important that who would have ever thought that today we have so many crises in Venezuela, in Yemen, in Syria, and it's so important that we look after our human rights <laughs> issues because then that in turn is going to be humanitarian issues. So in my opinion, I look at every issue when it involves an innocent civilian as a crisis. Well, I appreciate your response in terms of humanitarian issues, and I would share those with you, but um, I would expect someone who's the nominee for, to be the UN ambassador in response to that question to talk about, for example, uh, the challenges of North Korea aggression and nuclear proliferation, uh, the challenges in Libya, uh, destabilized Libya, the challenges of China's growing influence and ongoing threats from Iran, the challenges of Venezuela. Those are minimally some of the hotspots in the world right now. So when I ask about the most pressing issues, and I uh, certainly embrace the humanitarian issues, but these are the types of issues you will be called upon as the United States ambassador at the UN to be dealing. Let me ask you this, what UN functions would you describe as being of the greatest value to the United States? Senator, thank you. I believe that the Security Council is gonna be providing the greatest assistance to the US in calling out bad actors and in, and in highlighting anyone that demonstrates anti-Israel bias or anti-Semitism. And also reiterate that the Security Council is going to be an area that China and Russia can actually 
call themselves out by allowing the world to see how they do not assist us in human rights abuses, and especially in calling out corrosive behavior as we have in Iran. It is a moment that we can use to highlight bad actors, whether it be Iran, the Houthi rebels in Yemen, Russia, China, the way they treat the Uyghurs. I mean, we have so many crises that the Security Council, is, it's very important that we be able to use them in establishing sanctions and also in making certain that we tackle human rights abuses every day. Well, one follow-up question. The, you mentioned the, the Security Council, and certainly it's an essential uh, element of the UN. There's a whole host of other functions the UN has that I would commend to your attention. But uh, Russia, um, the President seeks uh, uh, to develop a greater personal relationship with Mr. Putin and Russia. Uh, how will you seek to avail yourself of that as it relates to Russia or the Security Council? Thank you, Senator. You know, I'm not going there to be Russia's friend. They're not our friend. They undermine us at every opportunity that they have. And you better believe I will keep a clear eye on them and understanding where we can work together, whether it's North Korea or other areas that we need to call them out on. I mean, we have to be very protective of Ukraine. We have to understand that they are propping up the Assad regime and also their human rights abuses. Our country has applied more sanctions in this administration than has ever been applied on Russia, and I will continue to hold them accountable. We will continue to apply maximum pressure, and if confirmed, I will promise you that we would be shining a light on Russia. Thank you very much. Thank you. Senator Paul, we uh, have been anxiously awaiting your arrival. You see we didn't wait well, for you, but... Uh, being the ever-courteous senator from Kentucky, I'll just wait till my turn, and I'll just make my remarks with my questions. Okay. I'm sorry I'm late. I was voting in another committee, though. Yeah, we understand so. that. Uh, thank you. Uh, Senator Isaacson, you're up. Thank you very much, Chairman Rich. I appreciate the opportunity, and welcome, Kelly. We're glad to have you. I say Kelly, I shouldn't say that. It should be very formal, but I know this lady very well, and uh, she is a great nominee. She's a great individual and someone I cherish my relationship with her very much. First of all, Mr. Chairman, uh, to you and the ranking member, she has been very good in her job as Ambassador to Canada. It's also been very good, always looking out for the best things in the United States of America and the best things the United States of America stands for. If you listen to her testimony a few minutes ago, and I was listening from a phone booth because I've got a little emergency going on back home. That's why I'm running back and forth. She's very much aware of the anti-Semitism probably have in Europe and around the world. She was forceful in the remarks she made about that, and she knows how to use her voice and her position as an advocate for the right thing to do. And she is someone who, would, when asked what to do, will always do the right thing. And I think that's the kind of person you're looking for in this job. I was one, one of the two people that nominated uh, Samantha Power uh, when Barack Obama appointed her UN ambassador. And I did it in this room right here. And I did it because she, Samantha Power had, and I think exhibited in her term there, the same type of quality as this lady has. And if you've got that kind of continuation of representation in the United Nations, which is a unique organization to start with, then you need to take advantage of that experience and that ability. Now, I, don't, I didn't hear that. I'm probably doing something wrong in the testimony, and I apologize for this. There's a chart over there with a lot of red squares on there. Would you tell me what that is behind Mr. Cardin? 
those are absences from post. What kind of absences? Just when well, that's what we're trying to determine. Okay. Well, I, I don't know where she was, but where it was, it was the best interest of the United States of America, I can tell you that. And I think you were doing trade negotiations a lot during that period of time. Is that not right? Yes, sir, Senator. When uh, President Trump uh, first asked me to be the ambassador to Canada, he made it very clear, as we discussed in your office yesterday, that this was a real job, that we were going to be renegotiating the most important trade partnership in the world with our number one trading partner, Canada. Um, little did I know that I would be living out of a suitcase most of the time during the trade negotiations, uh, whether it was in Montreal and then moved to Washington. I was part of Ambassador Lighthizer's negotiation team and went back and forth weekly from DC to Ottawa. It sometimes would be returning to Ottawa on a Wednesday and then on Wednesday evening be called back to DC. You know, I took the oath of office understanding that this job was 24-7 and I intended to make certain that I was going to be representing the American people at the table for the NAFTA negotiations. And you know, it was very important to Robert Lighthizer as he is our USTR trade negotiator that he have a team that was looking after the best interest of not only our country, but of the relationship that we have with our number one trade partner. And everything I can understand about that, you have did an outstanding job doing that, and everybody appreciates what you did. And do you think a UN ambassador is any busier than a United States senator? <laughs> it's not a trick question. And you know, I think I'm only going to be as successful as the relationships I have with all of you busy gentlemen well, and women. So I'm looking forward to, to learning more about your priorities so that I can just be just as busy. Well, I just want all the members to think about this on the question of absences. If you looked at my record the last three weeks, I've been in Baghdad, I've been in uh, Doha, I've been in Abu Dhabi, I've been in Marietta, Georgia, I went to the funeral of Dick Luger, and uh, I, wanted, wanted, I caught myself coming and going. I forgot the last place I went, but I have been traveling. Where? France, that's correct, with Mr. Carden. A small little celebration there of a great war we won. And we won it again this time for the 75th year in a row, by the way. We always celebrate that victory. But my point is, we go a lot of places too. I mean, my job is here, and it's my duty station. But my duty to my duty station and to my country is to be wherever the job's requirements take me. And just because your job requirements took you somewhere that wasn't in your office, doesn't mean you weren't doing your job. In fact, it may mean you were doing more of your job than anybody else was. You show me somebody's always sitting in their office, and I'll show you somebody's not doing much. And uh, so I just wanted to bring that up. If I, we didn't practice that. We didn't practice anything, as a matter of fact, but I just wanted to bring it up with it up there. So. And may I add that while I was not in my chair in my office, mm -hmm. I have a staff of foreign service officers that are second to none. And I felt very confident with my with not being in my office because I had people there running the mission as we discussed every day, and I, I must brag on the Foreign Service officers because without them, the mission, even before I arrived, the mission would have not been run so smoothly. Just two things, but I took too much of my own time, and I apologize, Mr. Chairman, but I'd like to unanimous consent that the letter from Gordon Giffen, the United States Ambassador to Canada, be submitted for the record. I think the Chairman read from that letter. It'll be submitted. And I just want to uh, thank you very much, and I'm sorry, sorry I went off track a little bit, but I think it's very important when we've got somebody representing us in the United Nations, they being engaged, 
person who believes in the things we believe as Americans and will work hard to get that done. I think Samantha Power did that. I know you'll do it, and I'm proud to support you. Thank you, Senator Isaacson. Thank you, Senator Isaacson. Senator Cardin. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Ambassador Kraft, uh, thank you for your willingness to serve our country. I also want to thank your family for being willing to share you in public service. Uh, we very much appreciate that. I, I want to make sure that we have a person as our ambassador at the United Nations that is an advocate for the UN. We have problems with the United Nations, make no mistake about it, but it serves a critically important function for U.S. national security. And our ambassador, our representative to the UN, needs to be an advocate to make the United Nations as effective as we possibly can with U.S. influence. So I want to talk about one issue first, and that is the Human Rights Council. I strongly have disagreed with actions in the Human Rights Council. In fact, Senator Portman and I have filed legislation dealing with action in, in the Human Rights Council. But the question is whether we participate or don't participate as a member of the Human Rights Council. And there is a concern that if we are not at the table, countries such as China or Russia get a much larger audience uh, than if we were there participating. So I want to get your view as to whether you think it is right for us to walk away from debates in which we cannot win uh, or we're better off staying there, making our points, and doing the best that we can. Thank you, Senator, and thank you for our, our meeting the other day, especially talking about the uh, goals of the UN. Um, whether or not we are in the room with the Human Rights Council or a member is really not as important as the, as the ability as the U.S. UN ambassador to use the Security Council as a platform to call out these countries on human rights abuses. If confirmed, I will use the Security Council as a platform and also understanding that it is not acceptable for the Human Rights Council to constantly undermine Israel, to constantly show anti-Israel bias and anti-Semitism. That is not- I, I agree with you on that. I'm not sure the Security Council has the effective way to counter what the Human Rights Council does. Uh, the, the, the actions, of course, there are subject to consensus with the P, P5. So if we don't have the permanent council members all in agreement, we can't get action in the Security Council. So I'm not sure that is a substitute. I think using Security Council is critically important. But I, I just urge your understanding of recognizing we're going to be dealing with nations that don't agree with us in forums sometimes that we cannot control the outcome. Should we participate or walk away? Senator, there are members of the Human Rights Council that are the very members that are committing these horrible human rights abuses. No disagreement from me on that. I mean, I, I, I find it just appalling that we have members of a council that are supposed to be holding accountable. Okay, let me move on to a second subject. Uh, you uh, gave, I thought, views that I strongly agree with in regards to climate change. And then you said you don't want to assume an outsized burden on behalf of the rest of the world. So I want to drill down on that for one moment because the United States is party to the 1992 UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. That's the climate change uh, that is subject right now to discussion by the White House. Uh, in that convention, it's, an, it, it's a 
basically a convention to come together as a global community to deal with climate issues. There is no specific commitments in the convention itself. Then 2015, in Paris, there was an agreement reached between 100 and now 95 signatories that basically provides for voluntary compliance. There is no enforcement of that. So where do you, are you concerned by the actions of the United Nations that the United States is assuming an overburdened share? Or is this just a, 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 a concern that you have in the work that you'll be doing at the United Nations to make sure that it's a fair burden shared globally? Thank you, Senator. Obviously, we both, we both agree that burden sharing is very important in the UN. We will always, the U.S., will always be a leader in contributing. I, I have a limited amount of time. I don't want to be rude. I'd just like you to get your view as to the framework, whether we should be working with the global community on climate issues. You know, we feel that being a member of the Paris Climate Agreement doesn't, we don't need to be a member in order to show leadership. You know, while we committed very robust, robustly in our commitment to the Paris Climate Agreement from a financial standpoint, we expected other countries to step up. And while they did commit, they really were not serious. And I feel very strongly, if, if confirmed, that climate change must be addressed, that we need to balance American economy with the environment, and we need to really stress to other people the, that innovation and technology to be used as tools to mitigate climate change. And if we, confirmed, we, I will be an advocate in addressing climate change. We lead by what we do here in America, but we also lead by engaging other countries because we cannot deal with the issues of climate change without actions globally, particularly by the major emitters. Do you support engaging the global community to deal with climate change? And if Paris was not right, what is right? Thank you, Senator. Absolutely, I do agree with you to <coughs> include and engage everyone in this conversation. But if you think about while we are committing on a robust manner and other people are not serious, we have underdeveloped countries that are being taken advantage of by China with their technology and innovation that is not for sustainability, it's for ownership. And while the U.S. is committing and other people are out there committing to own underdeveloped nations, we need to be using our technology and our innovations to show sustainability in underdeveloped countries, and that is what we do really well. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator. Uh, Senator Rubio. Thank you. Good morning, Ambassador Kraft. Thank you for being here. I wanted to close the loop on the travel question. The State Department has rules for travel, correct? Yes, Senator, they do. And uh, every trip that you've taken, all the little red, I don't know if it's the red or the white, uh, every single one of your trips were approved before yes. you took them by the yes. State Department. Yes, they were pre-approved before travel. And, and, and every one of your trips that you took and all of your travel uh, complies with every single guideline the State Department has in place for travel. Yes, Senator. Um, of all these, the trips that you took, um, how many did you cover from your personal funds? Uh, we assumed all responsibility for expenses and travel-related expenses for all of our trips, whether it be diplomatic or personal. So, so you personally paid for even official business trips? Yes, we did. All travel expenses. So it's fair to say you saved the taxpayers money. <coughs> yes, we did. Uh, I think I know the answer to this question, but uh, can you be at two places at once? <laughs> I certainly tried, but that's why we have well, uh, here's why I ask phones. You. <laughs> uh, the reason why I ask you is, 
in your time and post in, in Canada, is the top issue between the United, what, what would you say was the top issue between the US and Canada? My guess would be it would be the trade agreement negotiations. Uh, Senator Rubio, uh, U.S., you know, the NAFTA, renegotiating NAFTA to where we have USMCA today. I mean, I am still the current ambassador to Canada and will be working this evening with Prime Minister Trudeau, who's coming in to Washington, and will be with him tomorrow. It is very important. We had moments of uh, doubt, and that is why it was imperative that Ambassador McNaughton and myself be present, whether it be in Canada for the meetings or in Washington. And I was not going to let this country down, nor Ambassador Lighthizer and the President. But a significant number of these trips up on that board involve negotiations on USMCA that occurred within the United States. Yes, the, the majority of the negotiations occurred in Washington at USTR. When, did, the, did the White House ever deploy you to events around the country to promote USMCA? The uh, State Department would often suggest whether it be a northern governors and northern premier meeting or different meetings with governors in order to really stress the importance of our trade with each state because each state obviously canada i think the 33 of them is the number one trading partner so the point being the state department asked you and suggested that you attend certain events even within the united states to promote a top priority of the administration which is the usmca negotiations and agreement that is correct. Actually, I received uh, a lot of invitations, and my office would have to make you know, difficult decisions as, because I couldn't be two or three places at once, and they would have to make the decision. And being in Washington was my number one priority, and if that did not interfere with a trip that would be promoting NAFTA, USTR, or, or USMCA, then I would most certainly travel. So the bottom line being it was, in, it was not possible for you to both be in those negotiations for USMCA and also at some ceremonial event at a third country embassy at the same time. You had to make a choice and you prioritized in those cases the top priority of this administration with regards to our relationship with Canada. Yes, Senator. And you know, just talking about attending some of the other events, you know, I think it's really important whether I was present or obviously if I was not, I could not attend. But it's really important to include your team at your mission. I have 400 members, 400 incredible members at Mission Ottawa. And it is, it's important for them to have that exposure and to be able to attend. So on many occasions, they would actually ask if they could attend national days or other holiday events throughout Ottawa at the different missions. And, and I don't mean to diminish the importance of these events where people socialize and diplomatic corps gets together, but, and I, I can't speak for the Canadian government, but I have a sneaking suspicion that if forced to choose between having you here helping focus and help land a trade negotiation with them, or having you attend this week's cocktail party at some embassy, which is not an important event, I know diplomats need to do that, they would probably have preferred that we prioritize the trade deal, is my guess. Absolutely. This was not a time to socialize. This was really a time to work. I want to ask you about one more priority quickly. What have you done in your capacity as ambassador to Canada to advance the president's policy towards Venezuela? Uh, thank you, Senator. I know this is very important to you as, you know, who would have ever thought that we have four million refugees in Venezuela? Um, it is a, a real importance with Canada also, with the Lima Group and they were gracious enough. I was able to attend the Lima Group Plus One meeting in Ottawa. Um, their ambassador designee, Viera Blanco, to Canada uh, did not 
obviously have an embassy because the Maduro government, their appointees are still at the embassy in Ottawa. So we arranged for our meetings to be at my residence so that we could best understand the Latin America countries and the hardships that are being placed on them in taking in refugees, such as Colombia, taking in one million refugees. And you know, they have humanitarian issues within their own country. And I think it, I thought it was very important to allow you know, a, a place that the ambassador designate could be heard and he was very helpful in answering questions and taking back to the interim president Juan Guaido the concerns of the other countries. And you know, and, and you know, it is just so important. There is no other option than for Maduro to leave. And you know, it's just really important for us as Americans to be you know, demonstrating the fact that that we do care and that we are engaged. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, uh, Ranking Member. Thank you, Madam Ambassador. Uh, we do have three hearings going on at the same time on three different committees on which I serve, so I apologize for being out of breath. I literally ran upstairs from an appropriations hearing where we are marking up and advancing, I think, an important uh, bipartisan amendment now. So <clears throat> my apologies. Um, thank you for being here. Congratulations on your nomination uh, and for the work you've done representing us in Ottawa. We had the opportunity to uh, talk about some of the concerns other uh, senators have raised today. Um, our role in the United Nations, both in its founding, uh, in leading it, uh, and in uh, giving it a direction um, as it is a multilateral entity that helps the world come together to confront the most pressing global challenges is of significant uh, interest and concern to me. Um, the Trump administration has demonstrated repeatedly across a number of lines of engagement a strong preference uh, for unilateral actions um, and bilateral relationships over multilateralism. Um, if confirmed, you would be stepping into the most visible and most important role uh, I think our government has in a multilateral institution literally designed, built, and largely funded by the United States. And at a time when China is asserting its role in multilateral institutions, uh, at least in what they say and to a larger extent what they do. As we discussed, the first time I've ever met a Chinese flag rank officer uh, was in a peacekeeping, a UN peacekeeping mission in South Sudan. So given that China is seeking um, to fill the vacancy that I would argue our withdrawal from a number of institutions and organizations are creating. Um, in your view, do decreases in U.S. contributions to the U.N. and our withdrawal from U.N. bodies, such as Senator Cardin just asked you about, weaken our ability to push back against China's expanding influence, and in particular to effectively question and challenge China's human rights violations? Thank you, Senator, and thank you for the opportunity for us to talk about our daughters and, and the importance of doing the best you can, no matter what internship you may, may happen to take on. Uh, you know, I understand the critics when they say that we, we've kind of lost the way as why the values that the UN was founded upon. I think it's very important to talk about the fact that we were founded with equality, um, peace and security, making certain that we take care of social, economic, all issues within on the globe and human rights. And where that's an issue where we need to be very careful in shining a light on China, the way they treat the Uyghurs, um, just because they have become the second largest donor, which obviously is a reflection of their economy. 
uh, at the UN, we need to be even more cautious and more diligent in the relationship that, if confirmed, that I will build with other member states and making certain that they understand that, yes, China is, is participating in sharing in this burden, as we, we will always be the leader in contributing to the UN and will always take the leadership role. However, with China, as you well know, they have a motive, and that is better leverage and taking advantage of some of these underdeveloped countries through the UN system. My hope, Madam Ambassador, is that uh, your voice will be loud and clear and consistent in contributing to the UN, not just our financial contributions, but our voice in advocating for human rights. Um, on a bipartisan basis across a number of administrations, um, the UN has been a place where we have pushed back uh, against um, criticisms and questioning and challenges of, of actions of key allies and pushed forward on concerns that aren't raised anywhere else and aren't addressed anywhere else, and it's important to strike um, the right balance. Uh, I am particularly concerned about what seems to be a withdrawal from a long-standing bipartisan commitment to a two-state solution. Um, can you tell me about your view of a two-state solution um, and the central role that the UN can and should continue to play in advocating for that as a path forward in the Middle East? Senator, I am going to be, if confirmed, I will support the President's vision for peace and security in the region. And this is why it's so important every time any member state, or anyone for that matter, shows any anti-Israel bias or anti-Semitism, that not only do we call them out, but do we have to explain that this is slowing the process mm. for peace and security in the region. I'm going to interrupt because of my short time. Do you know whether the President's vision for peace and security in the Middle East includes supporting a two-state solution? I don't. Senator, I have not been part of the, of the uh, Middle East peace process, mm. but if confirmed, I will tell you there will be no stronger friend than Kelly Craft and the United States for Israel, and no stronger person to promote Israel in normalizing themselves in the system. I have two more questions I'll ask briefly. You may want to respond in writing afterwards or in some other way. I want to respect the time concerns we have here. Um, first, uh, you know, being an ambassador is a full-time, hands-on job, as I'm sure has been discussed while I've been at the other hearing. Um, your representation that a lot of your travel out of Ottawa has been to advance the USMCA, uh, if adequately documented and supported, I'm willing to take at face value, but I am concerned about issues that have been raised about your engagement and attendance in Ottawa. New York is even harder. There's even more nations, there's even more work, there's even more direct, and I would hope that you could persuade me that you will be uh, fully and directly engaged and provide the background that would support that last. Um, Ebola has broken out now in Uganda. I am concerned that while there's many other pressing issues, and I know I'm detaining some of my colleagues and their chance to question, I would welcome hearing from you how you view um, this is another opportunity for the administration to lead in a multilateral response, in a global response, rather than a unilateral response. Peace in the Middle East, Ebola, human rights, and our role overall in the UN, I need to hear from you that you're committed to and understand the value of how we built and how we will sustain this institution. Thank you, Madam Ambassador. I am well out of time, but I appreciate the chance to continue this discussion. Did you want those for the record, Senator Coons? Yes, Mr. All right with you, uh, yes. Ambassador. Okay, thank thanks. You. Thank you, Senator Coons. Uh, thank you so much. Senator Cruz. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Ambassador Kraft, welcome. Congratulations on this nomination. 
thank you for your distinguished service to our nation, serving today as ambassador to Canada. Uh, and I'm confident in this new post uh, that you will do an exemplary job. Uh, and, and indeed, I, I have a word of encouragement in, in that it, it is interesting. Uh, the principal criticism, as, as manifested on this, this colorful chart uh, that the committee has put up, uh, the principal criticism, it seems, leveled against you uh, is that, that you have traveled and worked too hard in your current post. Uh, which I find a uh, not terribly persuasive criticism and pretty strong indication that the end result of this uh, is going to be your confirmation. Uh, but but let's, let's dive into this criticism a little bit more because I don't think it withstands uh, even the barest of scrutiny. Um, as I understand it, some of the travel represented up there on that chart uh, included travel to Montreal. Is that correct? Yes, sir. And Montreal is in Canada? Yes. Uh, other of the travel there included travel to Calgary, is that correct? Yes, it did. And Calgary is in Canada? Absolutely. Uh, I am assuming, I don't know this, I'm assuming some of that included travel to Toronto. It, it, is, is that right? Yes. Um, so the last I checked, you were not the ambassador to Ottawa, you were the ambassador to Canada. Uh, is that right? The ambassador representing the United States in uh, Canada. In, indeed. Um, so the beginning argument that if you're traveling around the nation that you're appointed ambassador to be, to rep, uh, ambassador to, and if you were meeting with business leaders, government leaders, community leaders in those various towns, that's, that's somehow a dereliction of duty. Uh, you know, I, I would say you would be a poor ambassador indeed if you went to your office in Ottawa, locked the door, and stayed sitting in your office. That, that, that is indeed the exact opposite of one, what one wants an ambassador to do. Um, as I understand it, a significant portion of that travel also includes travel to Washington, D.C. Uh, to participate in strategy and negotiations for the USMCA. Is that right? Yes, it is. Um, is there any policy issue right now uh, between the United States and Canada that is more pressing, that is more urgent, that is a higher priority uh, than ensuring the strong and continued economic friendship, relationship, and trade between the United States and Canada? There is no other issue. It's so important that um, the Prime Minister is coming in today to further discuss USMCA and how he can help implement and ratify USMCA through his parliament in, in, at the same time through our Congress. And I guess if you were not a very good ambassador, uh, they might well have just left you in Ottawa. They might well have said, you know what, we're doing important stuff between the U.S. and Canada, but, you know, our ambassador's not up to snuff, so you just stay up there in the office and, and, and we'll do the meat of the negotiations. Of course, that's not what they did. Uh, no, you know, I take this very serious. It's a 24-7 job, and every state in the U.S. relies upon our trade partnership with Canada. And if I needed to be in a state to speak to a governor or a legislator or a mayor, everyone's affected by this USMCA, and it was vitally important. Well, and I will say you and I have, have known each other a long time. We, we are friends. I will say anyone that knows you knows that you are tenacious, you are hardworking, you do not know how to do a task halfway that that is simply not in you to do a task halfway, but rather 
if given a task, you are going to dive in with both feet and, feet and with all the energy and passion you have. That is how you have done the job of, as, as ambassador to Canada, and I have every confidence that's how you will do the job uh, as ambassador to the UN as well. Um, let's take a moment and talk about just how important the job uh, of ambassador to Canada is. Uh, Canada is, is one of our most important global allies. Uh, they're a member of Five Eyes, which means uh, they're one of our most important intelligence partners. Uh, U.S. defense arrangements with Canada are more extensive than any, any other country. We have more than 800 agreements on cooperation across national security. Uh, they're one of nine countries that have participated in the U.S.-led F-35 program. And you have been the point person uh, for the past year and a half for U.S. policy with Canada. Can you describe briefly how you approached that job and, and, and what you did to strengthen the friendship and relationship between the United States and Canada? Thank you, Senator. As you well know, it is, it's, it's vitally important to have this relationship before you go into negotiating. And Ambassador McNaughton was extremely important in including this friendship and this initial respect, because if you don't have respect, then when you're sitting at the table and you disagree, then you, you won't come back and it will not be productive. Um, you know, we had several issues as far as Five Eyes meetings, especially when it came to China and the use of 5G technology. Um, I am continuing to stress Canada to pay their 2% for NATO, so maybe I can say that publicly one more time. Um, and also just the fact that USMCA was so important to all of the Canadians everywhere I would go, whether it's Toronto, Calgary, um, Montreal, Quebec, Prince Edward Island, they would ask me about NAFTA and U USMCA at the time it was NAFTA and how important it was to them, to their families, to their, ec their economy, their community, that we, the United States and Canada, has a very healthy trade agreement. So I, you know, I was available 24-7, as I will be, as if confirmed, as the ambassador to the United Nations. Thank you, Ambassador. <clears throat> Thank you very much, uh, Senator Cruz. Appreciate your uh, unpaid advertisement for uh, them spending their 2%. Uh, uh, we've all tried that. The best, uh, <laughs> the best person I've seen is the President of the United States. Uh, he's done a good job of getting their attention, everybody's attention on that issue. Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Ambassador Kraft. Thank you for being here today and for agreeing to consider taking on this difficult position. I appreciated the opportunity to meet with you yesterday and our conversation and your passionate support for the UN system. I think that's absolutely critical to anyone who serves as ambassador to the UN. Um, I also appreciated the opportunity to talk with you about the United Nations Population Fund, or UNFPA. Um, because I believe it plays a vitally important role in providing health services to vulnerable women, to men, and to children in areas of conflict, poverty, or instability. In Venezuela, for example, UNFPA provides hospitals with desperately needed supplies and training to the few doctors that remain on how to deliver babies. Um, and as we discussed, this work is at risk because of a determination that UNFPA partners with programs in China that promote coercive population policies. I very much appreciated your commitment to look into these reports 
I have asked multiple representatives from USAID to the State Department about these reports, and I have seen nowhere any evidence that any partnership exists between UNFPA and supporting programs in China so that are require abortions for women. So I very much appreciated your commitment to look into those reports. I would urge you also to uh, meet with the executive director of UNFPA. The United States sits on their executive board. They approve um, UNFPA's country program. So I hope that if confirmed, you will agree to meet with the executive director. Is yes. that a yes? Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. And I also appreciated your agreeing to look into the disturbing reports last summer that the U.S. sought to block a resolution recognizing the importance of breastfeeding at the May 2018 World Health Assembly. Unfortunately, as we discussed, this is not the only concerning instance of attacks by the U.S. mission to the U.N. on women's health. I would urge you to ensure that if you are confirmed, the U.S. mission to the U.N., that you will lead reasserts its role as the leading proponent of women, of their rights, and of their health around the world. Is that something that you believe is important for the ambassador from the United States to do? Absolutely. And as we discussed, you know, both of us being mothers of daughters, and as you can see, um, beautiful granddaughters, it is so important that the, U the U.S. takes a lead in the organizations that promote the health and well-being of maternal and child health and voluntary family planning. And I can give you my word that I will do everything in my power to continue that support through organizations such as USAID, the World Food Program, World Health Program, we, UNICEF. We have so many wonderful organizations that are built upon success that are allowing women and children to be healthy because as you know and we've discussed, women and children are what keep our communities thriving. And without them, we will lose, we will actually lose the economy in those communities. So I, thank you for sharing yesterday. And um, I'm looking forward, if confirmed, to working very closely with you on women's issues. Well, thank you very much for that commitment. As we know, it has been the policy of the United States to empower women around the world. And, and that's good, not just because it's the right thing to do, but improve stability around the world that women give back more to their families, more to their communities, and more to their countries, and contribute to the stability of communities. And in that regard, um, this committee and this Congress passed, and the bill was signed into law in 2017, the Women, Peace, and Security Act, which is a commitment to ensure that women are part of the negotiating process in conflict areas when peace is being negotiated. Um, the administration just last week put forward a strategy to implement uh, the Women, Peace, and Security Act. I think it's very important, and if confirmed, can you commit to furthering this effort at the UN, including through bodies such as UN Women that promote the implementation of the principles of women, peace, and security? Yes, Senator Shaheen, and I commit that I will be an advocate for women's issues and making certain that, that we really highlight women and children and, and young girls so that they too can be strong women and be leaders in their communities and their countries and have the opportunity, as I have to be, if confirmed, the U.S. U.N. Ambassador. 
Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Shaheen. Senator Paul. Congratulations on your nomination. So I was a bit late, but I was trying to introduce my own bill to prevent government shutdowns in another committee, and I just couldn't leave. I was so excited about trying to get people to pay attention to this. Kentuckians are really excited about your nomination. Um, as you know, I supported you to be ambassador to Canada and will support you to be the ambassador to the UN. But I did want to explore a couple of questions about issues that I think are important um, with regard to the Middle East. Uh, do you agree with President Trump uh, that the Iraq war was a giant geopolitical mistake? Senator Paul, as we, we had this discussion in your office, and you know that I understand that President Trump has made the statement that he believes that the Iraq war was a mistake. And if confirmed, I will be following the president's policies. So do you agree with the president? You know, I'm not going to second guess the administration, the prior, the Bush administration, but I do acknowledge that President Trump has made the statement that he disagrees with our the reason it's an important question is it's not about history, it's not about something that happened uh, that has no influence over what happens now. It instructs, I think, dozens and dozens of different conflicts around the world. So, for example, do you think that uh, the regime change in Libya ha has been to the world's advantage or to our advantage? You know, I think the regime change in Libya has been very important, especially because we do have, you know, Heftar, we do have different situations going on at the moment. And it's really important that we have a strong presence there. Um, with you think the world's better off with the regime change and with the current situation in Libya? Well, we haven't really had a regime change as of yet with No, Haftar. I mean, we had, we had a regime change with Gaddafi. We were part oh. of France and the United States toppling Gaddafi. And um, some, myself included, would argue that we're worse off. I mean, that the place is very chaotic. Uh, it's been rife you know, with terrorist camps. We now have competing factions. We're now giving arms to Qatar as of last week that Qatar is now giving to uh, one side of the war and we support the other side of the war. We used to support the UN <laughs> sanctioned government. Now we support, you know, some other generals. And it's like, no, to me, it sounds like an unmitigated disaster there. And the reason I mention this is it, this is what happened in Iraq. We, ta we toppled a strong man uh, who wasn't going to get any human rights awards but he also had stability, and we replaced it with chaos. We now have Iraq that is more closely aligned with Iran. Iran is stronger because the geopolitical balance is, is, is tipped in the favor of Iran with Iraq gone, with Hussein gone. And so, yeah, I think the Iraq war still instructs us on whether Libya was a good idea, and we were a big part of Libya as well. Now, that wasn't this president. That was the previous president. But uh, I think there is still a question, and there will be questions that will come before you at the UN, whether or not regime change in the Middle East is our business and whether or not it has been to our advantage. So I guess the question really is going back to Libya. Do you think regime change has been to our advantage? You know, I believe what, what is really important is that, uh, that we show strength, we show deterrence. I mean, we have a situation in Iran with the most corrosive behavior. We have seen no change in their behavior. Right. You're speaking about Iraq. You know, they are trying to take Iraq and make it into a client state. You know, we have a special political mission there. Um, but if the president were here, he would respond and he would say, yeah, and Iraq is open to that because Iraq's Shia majority now rules the place because uh, we toppled Hussein. So, I mean, we've created the opportunity where Iraq is aligning themselves with Iran. It isn't sort of Iran taking over Iraq. It's Iraq having great sympathy for Iran. 
And so we just have to think, think these things through because all throughout the Middle East, it's been run by iron-fisted men and no diplomats, no Democrats, no, no uh, people who believe in constitutional Republicans, no Jeffersonians, um, but they have stability. When we've toppled them, we've gotten instability. In Syria, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people have fled and 100,000 people died because of this noble notion that we'd get rid of this dictator Assad. It hadn't worked. I mean, that, that's my whole point. And the only point I'd like to leave you with is that the president feels like the Iraq war was a mistake. He's probably said it 200 times or more. And uh, it instructs what we think about the other wars. And I hope you will take that to heart because really whether or not we get involved in the next Middle Eastern country. And the only other thing I would say about the, the Iran situation is realize that for as much of the problems we have with Iran, the stated problems, um, I think I've got as many or more with Saudi Arabia. They chopped up a dissident with a bone saw. You know, we continue to fuel an arms race that is Saudi Arabia pitted against Iran. Who spreads more jihadism and hatred of Christians and Jews and Hindus around the world? Saudis by far. $100 billion spent worldwide. So all I ask is it's a complicated world. I don't have all the answers, but realize in the Middle East that uh, there have been a lot of unintended consequences to our involvement. Thanks. Senator Markey. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, <clears throat> Madam Ambassador, um, and by the way, thank you for the visit in my office. I, I sent you a letter on May 3rd, along with Senators Merkley and Whitehouse, asking about your family's nearly $1 billion uh, coal investments and how they might conflict with any climate change discussions that you would uh, have a potential role in at the United Nations. I did receive the response, it was at 9.59 a.m. this morning, and I would ask, Mr. Chairman, if I can include the questions and the answers in the record. It will be included. Uh, I thank you. But it, your responses actually don't go to the question, which is at the heart of the issue, which is uh, whether or not there is a conflict. and. From my perspective, I think it's important for the American people to know uh, that those who are performing their duties can do so in a way that doesn't have that kind of a conflict. So I guess my first question to you is, do you believe that your family's coal assets would cause a reasonable person to question your impartiality in matters related to the Paris Agreement that is the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change or any other climate issue which is being considered at the United Nations. Thank you, Senator, and thank you for this, this exact conversation in your office and for the opportunity to have that discussion with you one-on-one. -on -one. Um, as you know, as I've stated, um, we work, my husband and I have worked very closely with the Office of Government Ethics, and as we did in 2017, we take this agreement very seriously and we were in full compliance. We have also, again, worked very closely with the Office of Government Ethics, developing the 2019 ethics agreement and our commitment to abide by each <coughs> part of this ethics agreement, which we will do. And I give you my word <coughs> that wherever there is any doubt in my mind, as I often did with my 2000 agreement, I will be calling upon the, the legal counsel provided right. by the State Department. I guess I'm asking you though, not your legal counsel, will you recuse yourself from any 
fossil fuel related discussions in terms of their impact on climate change in your tenure at the United Nations? Uh, Senator, as we discussed, where there is the issue of coal and or fossil fuels, I will recuse myself in meetings through the UN. I understand that you if confirmed. You will recuse yourself. Yes, sir. I understand if confirmed that this is a top priority. Climate change is a top priority at the United Nations. And with our ethics agreement, we have made a commitment, and I will make a commitment to you that I will recuse myself. I have a, a team at USUN you that is second. You will recuse yourself from any matter that relates to fossil fuels and climate change at the United States. When there is coal in the conversation, we are still waiting for clarity on fossil fuels for that conversation within our ethics agreement. We have asked for clarity on this, but I will give you my commitment that where coal is part of the conversation within climate change at the UN, I will recuse myself and feel very confident the team at the USUN, the experts that have been working on, on, on the climate change issues, specifically fossil fuels and coal, that I feel very confident that they will be able to take my Did place. Does your family have oil and gas interests as well? I am not aware. I do not, I do not know what our interests. Well, if that was the case, would you recuse from those areas as well? If our ethics agreement called for, us to, called for me to recuse myself, absolutely. I will be in full compliance, I give you my word, with our ethics agreement. And as you, as you know, the United Nations at the end of 2018 concluded that climate change is now an existential threat to the planet. And our own scientists, 13 federal agencies, concluded in November of 2018 that with business as usual, the planet will warm by nine degrees Fahrenheit by the end of this century. Uh, and our oceans could rise by 11 feet. So this is clearly a very important issue. And at the heart of it, the scientists believe is the role that fossil fuels and human activity are playing in it. Um, do you think that the United States can effectively steer the debate on climate change if we're the only country that's withdrawn from the Paris Agreement? What role could you play as a business example, a, a, a businesswoman, if you withdrew from the board in terms of influencing the decisions of that board? Doesn't that put you in a very awkward position? Senator, no, we withdrew from the Paris Agreement because we feel like we don't have to be part of an agreement to be leaders. I mean, we are already seeing a difference between 2005 and 2017. We've had 14% reduction in emissions. We have the best and the brightest in innovations and technology, as you and I have discussed. And, and I understand this is an issue that needs to be addressed. I also understand that fossil fuels has played a part in climate change. And if confirmed... Do you agree with the U.S. scientists that say that it's largely because of fossil fuels and human activity? That's just in November of 2018, and it's every federal agency. I acknowledge that there is a vast amount of science that regarding climate change and, and the tools and the way, the role that humans have played in climate change. Thanks. Senator Romney. Thank you, Ambassador uh, Kraft, for being here and for uh, 
considering this uh, very important uh, responsibility. I, I begin, Mr. Chairman, by acknowledging a very personal bias here, which is uh, um, uh, uh, Kelly and I are, are long-term friends. Um, uh, also, uh, her, with her husband, um, uh, Senator Cruz indicated that she's tenacious and hardworking, I'd add relentless, uh, and has great power uh, over people, uh, as evidenced by the fact that her husband has been sitting there with, without moving for a long, long time. I've never seen Joe Kraft sit in one place so long uh, and so uncomfortably, uh, I might add, uh, as he is having to do today. Um, uh, I appreciate uh, the service also yeah, that- I may have to ask for a ride home after this. Yeah, so right. if anyone you know, can offer me a ride after climate change. <laughs> I, I'd also note that uh, uh, your public service is greatly valued and appreciated. Um, and I'd also note that your, your service in the private sector is uh, very much appreciated. I think sometimes we in government uh, assume that uh, that we're the ones that are helping the public and doing what's right for the country, but I would note that that uh, every dollar we have to spend is only valuable if it represents a good or a service produced in the private sector. And I very deeply appreciate the work that you've uh, uh, carried out in the, in the private sector to uh, provide employment to people and to provide the uh, uh, positive benefits to our country. I'd also note that, that with regards to your family's uh, involvement and investment in coal. Uh, coal happens to represent 70% of the power in my uh, home state of Utah. Uh, I, I am very anxious to find ways to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions, but I would, would note that coal will be for many decades a major source of power uh, in our country and other countries around the world and appreciate those facilities that, that provide coal in a, in a uh, clean and effective way, uh, providing good jobs to our to our citizens and uh, and and uh, and power that very much provides for our economy and the economies around the world. Uh, turning to a couple of uh, questions relating to your uh, uh, appointment, uh, and that is with regards to your priorities at the United Nations. Um, there are many many things that are going on in the world right now, um, and I don't know whether you've given thought to the things that you would consider among your highest priorities. It's perhaps a long list, but w would you care to to uh, list for us uh, or describe as you'd like the things that you think are the highest priorities you would have as a ambassador from the United States to the UN. Thank you, Senator, and thank you for your time and catching up on our families in your office. It was actually very refreshing. Thank you. Um, you know, I, I've given this a lot of thought because I understand that, uh, you know, my time there will, will not be a lengthy amount of time and that my top three issues were going to be reform, uh, humanitarian needs, and public-private partnership. You know, we have a uh, Secretary General in Guterres who also places reform as a top priority, and I can't imagine a better partnership and a better teammate to be able to tackle reform. And, you know, I've, I've spoken to several of my predecessors and also been reading about the ones that, you know, I am going to be walking in their footsteps, and I see so each of them that I've spoken to and read about have had reform as their top priority. And I think it's very important. We have made small incremental steps, but there is a lot to be done. You know, we owe it to our taxpayers to spend their money wisely and to be stewards of their money and also to make certain that their money is not spent in the UN system, but out in the field helping the people that we are in humanitarian need. I mean, I think we need to be very cautious and very careful about duplication in areas within the Secretariat. And, you know, in order to receive better transparency and accountability, I think it's vitally important that we 
really emphasize putting Americans, having Americans hired into the system because they're, uh, they're underrepresented. Uh, and also promoting our allies in the system that share our values because with that, we are going to have greater you know, transparency. As you can see with uh, UNICEF and the World Food Program, we have an incredible transparency and accountability and success. Um, within uh, humanitarian issues, uh, as you well know, this is something that's very dear to my heart. And I think it's very important that we stress burden sharing. Who would have ever known that we have this sort of time at time in history where we have so many needs throughout the world, whether it been in Venezuela, you know, Yemen, Syria. I mean, there are so many pressing matters. I think it's important that I'd rather call it success sharing because there's nothing better than to know when you've helped another person. This is just going to be helping hundreds of thousands of people. Um, and then with public-private partnerships, my husband and I have been very fortunate to have had this experience with the Craft Academy and seeing the successes of being able to partner with our state of Kentucky in developing an academy for juniors and seniors in high school in a college program. And I think that I can leverage my relationships and bring them, if confirmed, to the UN. And you know, the opportunities for underdeveloped countries for Americans to go in and add sustainability and to, and to create community, especially for women and children and displaced people, it is just vast. And it's actually very exciting because we, have, we are a nation uh, that is always the first to arrive and the last to leave. And I'm looking forward to bringing more people in that area of success. Thank you, Ambassador. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Thank you for your, your testimony. We had a chance to talk. You expressed a lot of concern about the Rohingya and the uh, genocide. But our State Department hasn't made a genocide determination. They have decided not to act. And would you push, as UN Ambassador, for the State Department to make a genocide determination? You know, thank you, Senator. I know we both we both uh, share the concern of the treatment of the Rohingyas. It's unexcusable. Uh, it, is, it is ethnic cleansing, and I, I trust in the fact that we do now have someone that has been assigned to investigate and to really uh, keep close all of their findings in hopes of bringing the military commanders and in hopes of having some sort of a judicial system there. Uh, I think it's very important, as we discussed, that we make certain that Bangladesh, that they also are in need, and as they've taken in all of these refugees. I, there's, there's a lot we could examine in this, but I'm just asking, uh, will you push for the State Department to complete a genocide determination? We're now approaching two years since the genocide occurred. Senator, this is not a decision for me to make. This is a decision that's made within the State Department, and I'm looking forward to more conversation with you as we do share in the plight of the Rohingyas, and I can assure you that I will be a strong voice on behalf of the Rohingyas. Thank you. Um, across the world, the UN Population Fund has been a critical factor in women's health. Uh, we've decided not to fund it as a nation, but it's hugely effective. Uh, our concerns have been about China and about uh, reproductive rights issues that have now been checked out many, many times and found China has completely changed their, uh, their policies. 
Would you support the U.S. Uh, enhancing women's health around the world by advocating for the U.N. Population Fund? Senator, thank you. As you know and I know that um, we, we strongly believe, and it's nice to hear that, that maybe there, there's a different view on this now, that the Chinese state institutions were uh, providing, actually being very coercive in abortion, abortions. And that's why we withdrew our 35 million and we placed that within USAID. As you well know, the United States, we are leaders in organizations throughout the UN in promoting the health and well-being of mothers and children, prenatal, postnatal, and voluntary family planning. And if it's correct that there has been proof that the Chinese have not been engaged in UNFPA, I most certainly look forward to the discussion, if confirmed, at the UN. So the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change found that uh, carbon pollution is responsible for a whole host of impacts. We see them all over Oregon, less snowpack, more forest fires, more acidic ocean affecting our our um, shellfish, uh, our warmer winters, great for pine beetles, terrible for pine trees. President Trump said of their report, I don't believe it. Do you believe it? Senator, I have, have not seen that report, but I can tell you that uh, we have issues around the world in underdeveloped nations where we have flooding and drought in different areas that have been attributed to climate change. Alliance, so that, that, that was a believe it answer? I have, I have not read that report, and if uh, you don't mind the opportunity, I will be, be able to read it and answer you um, in writing. Do you believe the core understanding that carbon pollution contributes to climate change? You know, I believe that climate change needs to be addressed, and I believe that fossil fuels do play a role in attributing to climate change. Alliance Resource Partners, which your family owns, lobbied the EPA to implement policies that benefit polluting industries at the cost of clean water and air and U.S. leadership on climate, if confirmed. Will you go to New York representing the interests of our country, and will you advocate for us to continue to support the commitments we made under the Paris Climate Agreement? Senator, if confirmed, I will be in full compliance of our ethics agreement. As you well know, we can be a leader. We are leaders without being a member of the Paris Climate Agreement. And within that agreement, we are already establishing success without being part of the Paris Climate Agreement with our innovation, our technology. You know, we have had a 14% reduction in emissions since 2005 to 2017, while at the same time, our economy has been robust. Since we're, we're essentially on track, as you describe, and uh, why does it benefit us in terms of international leadership to exit the agreement? Since it had great flexibility and we're on track, what does it benefit America to step out of the role of partnering with other countries to hold them accountable? You know, Senator, we are going to hold people accountable whether we are in an agreement or not. And I think what is proof is the steps we have taken forward to balance our economy and our environment. And I think when other countries see that you can do this and that our economy has grown while at the same time taking care of our environment, that's how we show leadership. My time's up. Thank you. Senator Portman. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and uh, thank you, uh, 
Ambassador Kraft for being here today and your willingness to step forward and serve, both uh, in Canada, where you worked uh, with us a lot on USMCA, and now uh, through your nomination to the uh, next job, which would be uh, U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, a huge job. Uh, I was here earlier, you got to hear some of the back and forth, and, and I have a couple follow-up questions, if that's okay. One is, with regard to USMCA, can you tell us what you think of that agreement? Uh, you were very involved, I know, on the Canadian side, and getting them to make some concessions, uh, specifically on their uh, dairy program and, um, you know, broadening the market access for some of our products. What do you think about USMCA? Thank you, Senator, for the opportunity to talk about USMCA. Uh, we are, you know, I'm still the ambassador to Canada and very much engaged, as we will be uh, tomorrow for our bilateral meeting mm -hmm. discussing USMCA. It was absolutely, um, first of all, the Canadians are as fierce negotiators as the Americans. Mm -hmm. We learned that very quickly. Um, as we discussed, I am a granddaughter of tobacco farmers, and I understand the importance of the emotional aspect when it relates to the, the agriculture chapter three of USMCA, mm -hmm. and was able to really um, speak with Ambassador Lighthizer and with the president and relay the message that we need to be more, a little more understanding of the emotional, emotional toil that it was taking at the moment on the Canadians when they have to go back to the Quebec area and speak with the dairy farmers. You know, this, was an elect this is an election year for Prime Minister Trudeau, and um, it was a very emotional topic for them with their dairy farmers. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's really important. It was very successful. And most importantly is that it lifted the doubt in the, in the minds of Americans and Canadians. And they were able to feel very secure and confident with their purchases, with if they had small businesses or medium-sized businesses to know that they are going to be supported by USMCA. Mm -hmm. So you support the agreement um, in its final form that was negotiated? Absolutely, yes, I do. And moving on to the issue of uh, boycotts, divestment, sanctions, BDS legislation, as you know, Senator Cardin and I have introduced a resolution that actually now has uh, over half of the Senate supporting it, 58 co-sponsors. Um, it simply says that these efforts should not be supported because they're an effort to delegitimize Israel and a form of discrimination. And in fact, we have another bill <laughs> that we introduced last year that also got a lot of support, but. Uh, we have not reintroduced it this year until we can have this broader discussion, and that's with regard to the international organizations like the UN Human Rights Commission. And um, we have looked very closely at what the uh, Human Rights Council has done, what they have said with regard to Israel. They have Israel on their permanent agenda, as you know. You talked about that earlier. Uh, they have apparently put together a blacklist of companies that do business in Gaza and the West Bank, and they'd levy sanctions against U.S. companies that did business there. Uh, we have not seen that yet, it's not come out yet, uh, but we have a deep concern about it. So I'd ask you a couple of questions. One, do you agree it's wrong for Israel to be on the permanent agenda, and how could that impede the peace process? But second, do you feel that the BDS efforts against Israel are contrary to the efforts we're trying to make in the region to have a negotiated peace between Israel and the Palestinians? Thank you, Senator. You know, I, on uh, re releasing names, I am certain that Michelle Bachelet is being very cautious and she's been working with us mm -hmm. on protecting the names of businesses in Israel and within, you know, outside of Israel just to protect. There's no place to be able to release American businesses or any other businesses for that matter that could be harmed by a list being released. Mm -hmm. um, if confirmed, there will be no stronger ally than Kelly Craft for Israel on behalf of the United States. There is no room whatsoever for anti-Israel bias or anti-Semitism. 
And you know, with the strength of this committee, I am certain that we can defeat any areas, whether it's a Human Rights Council in, in bringing up anti-Israel bias, every opportunity they have, or any place in the UN, there is no place for that. And I think that we really need to stress to Israel and promote them. They're the best promoters themselves. You know, they have Startup Nation, and they need to be promoted to push themselves and normalize within the UN system because they have a lot to offer. Well, we look forward to working with you, should you be confirmed, which I believe you will be. And uh, I know Senator Cardin and I w would like to move forward with that legislation soon and ensure that uh, we don't have that blacklist ever be published because it would then, uh, as you say, would have a, a negative impact on a lot of things, including the peace process, in my view, between Israel and the Palestinians. On human trafficking, I know you've been involved in this issue and care a lot about it. There's an Office of Drug Control and the Center for International Crime Prevention, which has a responsibility for addressing trafficking. If confirmed, would you pledge to make ending human trafficking and sex trafficking a key part of your agenda and work to strengthen the efforts of this UN body in that regard? Senator, absolutely. In, anywhere within the UN system where there is a human rights abuses, human trafficking, I mean, this affects everyone. Mm -hmm. I give you my word that I will be a strong advocate combating human trafficking and any human rights abuses. Thank you. Good luck. Thank you, Chairman. Thank you, Senator King. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and I want to congratulate the ambassador on her nomination. Thank her for her um, hospitality to many of us who visited the Halifax Security Forum in November. And I want to just pick up on your last comment that you'll be a strong advocate for human rights in the UN system. And I appreciated that aspect of our one-on-one -on -one discussion. Um, I just want to ask you about the news of today, just the news of today. Uh, in January, Agnes Calamard was appointed the UN Special Rapporteur on the extra, she's the ex Rapporteur on Extrajudicial Summary or Arbitrary Executions. And she announced she was gonna be leading an investigation into the assassination of Saudi citizen, Virginia resident, Washington Post journalist, Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, the report came out today. Um, it's damning, but unfortunately not surprising, because it mirrors the CIA's conclusions. I quote, it is the conclusion of the special rapporteur that Mr. Khashoggi has been the victim of a deliberate premeditated execution, an extrajudicial killing for which the state of Saudi Arabia is responsible under international human rights law. Uh, Mr. Chair, I'd like to introduce the UN report into the record, if I may. You may. The report finds six violations of international law. The prohibition against arbitrary deprivation of life, the prohibition against extraterritorial use of force, the requirement that states use consular missions for official purposes, the prohibition against torture, the prohibition against enforced disappearance, and in killing a journalist, violation of a core tenet of the UN, the protection of freedom of expression. The special rapporteur determined that there was credible evidence warranting further investigation of high-level Saudi officials, individual liability, including the Crown Prince, and finally, the rapporteur called on the Human Rights Council, the Security Council, and the UN Secretary General to conduct international follow-up criminal investigations to determine individual liability. <coughs> She's found liability by the state of Saudi Arabia, but she suggests there needs to be individual liability determinations as well. Do you believe that there should be accountability for the assassination of Jamal Khashoggi, both because it's a criminal offense and it's a violation of international law? Senator, you know, we have made it very clear with Saudi Arabia that 
any human rights abuse is not okay, and they must change this behavior. I, I, I want to ask really specifically mm -hmm. about Khashoggi because this is now going to be in your wheelhouse if you're confirmed. There's a request that the UN, including the Security Council, act. So let me just state it again as I did. Do you believe that there should be accountability for the assassination of Jamal Khashoggi? I believe that where this investigation will, will take us, we will follow. And if, yes, anyone who's responsible, you know, we identified the 17 that were responsible for this heinous crime. The, the report uh, dramatically challenges that those 17 are responsible and actually says it's higher officials who are responsible. And I would encourage you to take a look at it, but, but I'm encouraged by a portion of your statement that there should be accountability. Um, second, should the United States encourage accountability, abstain from requests for accountability, or um, block request for accountability? We should definitely always request accountability. Okay, so we should be involved in requests for accountability. And would you agree with me that the accountability for this crime and violation of six principles of international and human rights law, should the accountability be placed on whoever's shoulders is in fact responsible regardless of the title that they may hold? I believe the accountability is going to be uh, a decision that I have full faith in, in the investigative process. I have full faith in the special repertoire. No, no, one, no one should be immune from accountability if they were involved in a crime of this magnitude. Would you no, agree with me? We, we will follow where this investigation takes us, and I can guarantee you that the State Department is investigating, the authorities are investigating. Here's we a question that I know the answer to, but I want to ask you for the record. Can you see, foresee any circumstance? under which the U.S. would plan the execution and dismemberment of a United States citizen at, for example, the U.S. consulate in Montreal? Senator, we are not that sort of a country. So you would you agree know. with me that that would be so contrary to American values and so contrary to international morality that there would never be a circumstance under which the U.S. could plan or tolerate the execution of an American citizen in the U.S. consulate in Montreal. You agree with me on that? Yes, sir, absolutely. As a member of the Security Council, now this has been put into the court of the Security Council, and the, and the U.S. will be the head of the Security Council come December. You said human rights is going to be one of your priorities. Can you give me a commitment that the United States, with you representing it as head of the Security Council, will do everything possible to make sure that the investigations called for here and the accountability that would follow upon such investigations are actively pursued by this country. Absolutely, we will, and I will give you my word on this, and we know there is an investigation, and we will follow this investigation where it takes us. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Barrasso. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, welcome, Ambassador. Great to see you again. Thank you for being here. I, you know, what I hear about a lot at home in Wyoming, and you may have as well in, in Kentucky, the issues of American values, American ideals, American standards, and American sovereignty within the UN. Uh, that is a big issue that continues to come up uh, at home. And just ask you a little bit about how you would preserve and protect our sovereignty, our American sovereignty within the United Nations. And, you know, committing to your commitment to challenge the actions of the United Nations that run contrary to our values, our beliefs, the, 
you know, the, the things that we hold in, in, that we care about in common here in the United States. Thank you, Senator. And as you well know, when the UN was founded after World War II on U.S. values, and those values we hold very close, you know, peace and security, equal rights, human rights, supporting social, economic, humanitarian issues. I agree that there, is, there are critics that say we are not strong on those values. I agree with that. And if confirmed, that will be an area that I will take with me and demand from all the 192 member states that we go back and we, we look at those, the four founding principles in the UN Charter and that we really try to use that as a guideline because doing the right thing as it's listed in those four, there's no compromise. And it doesn't matter how many years it's been since it's been founded. Doing the right thing with peace and equality, human rights, equal rights, you can't go wrong. You know, at home we say, how do you vote? And you say, well, we vote based on the Constitution, based on your conscience clearly, your constituents, your country. And I have concerns about the UN, and I hear it all the time as well at home in terms of our U.S. values and standards not necessarily being met at the U.N. And then we have a significant financial contribution. I think we're the number one country for contributing uh, to the U.N. This is U.S. taxpayer dollars. And, and people say, well, just you know, stop paying your dues to the U.N., pull out of, of the funding. So just as, as we deal with a large uh, national debt, uh, I'd ask your commitment to safeguarding U.S. taxpayer dollars in this new role that I encouraging you and uh, look forward to your test, your, uh, your confirmation. Thank you, Senator. If confirmed, I, I will be a, a great steward of our American taxpayer dollars. I, I just want to share with you, I am a firm believer in the United Nations. This may be the only stage for some countries to be able to, to cry out for help. And you know, we are a leader and there, we are always the first to be there to help and we will always be the first. But we have to allow the UN as a platform, a healthy platform, for all the other countries that are less fortunate than we are to be able to reach out. And you know, I was just reminded when I was in Senator Gardner's office, um, there were two individuals, they actually were refugees, Rohingya refugees, and he introduced me to them as the US ambassador to Canada and then introduced me as the nominee. And the young woman who is part of a group from Cox Bazaar in, in protecting women and their, their rights and making certain that no one's being abused in this area. She just held on to me and she just said, thank you. Thank you because I know you're gonna help me. And I'll give you my word that we will go back to those four founding values because you cannot compromise human rights and equality. You know, we, we share those concerns. I know Ambassador uh, Nikki Haley has, has commented on that. I think Senator Portman just asked about the whole issue of sexual exploitation and abuse and, and what you've just outlined there. But we've seen it with, you, with UN peacekeepers uh, in the past, people that are supposed to be in there providing a peacekeeping role and then taking uh, unfair, undue advantage of people in a wrong way, immoral against every one of our, our values. So it's, you know, how can the UN address the abuse and the misconduct of the, of the UN peacekeepers you know, more effectively. Do you have any, any suggestions on that? Thank you, Senator. And that's a conversation that I've had with Ambassador Haley. And I believe that you know, where, she, where she was very strong on the peacekeeping troops is I understand that the renewal is six months to a year. 
you know, we need to be making certain weekly, monthly, that they are abiding by the guidelines. They are, they too are stretched very thin. I mean, who would have ever thought we have this uptick in Ebola, you know, in Congo? We need to make certain that they have the tools to, to protect the very people they need to be protecting. We need to also make certain that if there is sexual exploitation, that they are immediately sent back to their country and that we are in constant communication with our mission in their home country. And most importantly, that we make very clear to their government that we expect them to investigate and if they are found guilty, to prosecute within their own system and make certain that they are never back out in the field protecting innocent civilians. Well, th thank you and congratulations again on your nomination. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Graham. Mr. Chairman, uh, uh, let me add my congratulations. You're going to be President Trump's ambassador to the United Nations, not mine, not anybody else's. So your job is to represent the administration's points of view. Do you agree with that? Thank you, Senator. I'm going to be um, representing the United States of America and every single person that lives here and everybody who, Americans that live abroad. And, you know, I take this so, so serious. So what policies are you going to advocate? I'm going to be advocating the policies of this administration. Okay, that's the point. Not everybody in the country. The administration. Now, here's the way I look at these things. I usually vote for qualified nominees knowing that the policies they'll be advocating, if in a Democratic administration, I don't agree with, I think by any reasonable measure, you're a very qualified person. You've been ambassador to Canada. You know, if you're qualified and not crazy, you usually get my vote. You don't seem to be crazy at all, <laughs> other than wanting to come here, maybe. Uh, the bottom line is I appreciate you're willing to serve the country. <clears throat> and you gotta understand that the policies that you will be asked to advocate, <clears throat> sometimes, all of us will disagree, and that's not the test for me, is are you capable of representing our country with dignity and intellect? Yes. Absolutely. Uh, I, have, I have sharp elbows. Yeah, and I, will be I believe easy. it. I think you'll give the president good, sound advice, maybe something he doesn't want to hear, but you know, it would be up to, to him to make the call on climate change. Uh, I believe in it. I think it's real. A man's substantially contributing to it. The Paris Accords basically of China and India pass is <clears throat> aspirational, not binding. I don't blame Trump for getting out because the agreement was pretty one-sided. Do you agree with me, no matter what we do in the United States, if China and India, if they don't up their game, doesn't matter? You know, I strongly believe in the fact that the U.S. Is, has become a leader um, without my, my being... My question is, is China and India, do they admit more carbon than we do? I understand at the moment, yes, they do. And yeah. I also understand that while they did commit to the Paris Agreement, yeah. As you well, well know, go, they were go not read serious. the agreement. They didn't commit to much. So uh, I believe in climate change is real, but if you don't have an agreement, make it real for the people who actually right. cause more of the problem than we do. MBS, uh, <clears throat> let me just say this. I introduced him a couple of years ago in Washington <clears throat> when they gave an award to John McCain for his uh, help to the kingdom over the years. I've got many friends in Saudi Arabia. I've been there a bunch, usually with Senator McCain. Uh, and it breaks my heart that we are where we are. Uh, the kingdom is a strategic ally, many friends in the kingdom who are wanting the country to be better. I personally feel betrayed. I feel like that the actions that took place with Mr. Khashoggi were 
showed a lack of respect for their relationship to the United States, who in their right mind would put us in this box? We deal with bad people all the time. We dealt with Stalin in World War II, but when the war was over, we didn't embrace communism. So there's no amount of oil coming out of Saudi Arabia, and there's no threat from Iran that's going to get me to back off. So I just want every strategic partner to know that there's a price to be paid to get in our orbit. He did it. Wouldn't have happened without him. He knew it was going to happen. He wanted it to happen. He caused it to happen. And this is just a tip of the iceberg of other things that are going on in this kingdom. So to my friends in Saudi Arabia, you've lost me. You got nobody to blame but yourself. If you want a normal relationship with the United States, try to act normal. And what's going on in Saudi Arabia is not normal. Some teenagers facing being executed because he tweeted or something. It's just crazy stuff. Putting the Lebanese prime minister in house arrest and it's just nuts. So if you want things to get better in Saudi Arabia, you need to deal with it. And we're going to fight hard to push back. So um, after this report's issued, I want you to let the committee know, do you believe he did it? You don't have to answer now. Uh, finally, the war. Do you believe we're at war, the United States? Senator, what I believe is we are showing strong deterrence. Are we you at know, war? Who are we at war with? Who are we trying to deter? We need to deter. We need to think about Iran and their corrosive behavior. What is the big theme of this war? Radical Islam versus the world. Well, we need to think about this corrosive Do you agree behavior. with that or I not? Mean, excuse me? Do you agree that we're at war with radical Islam in many forms? In many forms, yes, and I do believe that we ISIS be is a Sunni form. Iran's a Shia form. So here's my point. The budget of this administration reduced the State Department's budget. The budget of the State Department was reduced by 20-something percent. How do you win this war without investing in the lives of others? I've been to Iraq and Afghanistan 54 times. If you think you can kill your way out of this mess, you don't know what you're talking about. So how do you take soft power off the table and win what is an ideological struggle? Do you agree with me that the most devastating thing we could do to radical Islam is to build a small schoolhouse in a remote region educating a young girl and giving her a say about her children and a hope for a better life? That will do more damage than a bomb dropped on their heads. You know, we care about it. These are humans. These are people. Well, why did we reduce and, and our budget by 20-something percent? You know, we are asking for people to step up and share, share this We burden. step down? And Is the no, world we, safe enough for us to step down? No, sir. We are okay. leaders within the United Nations, and we are leaders around the world. Senator Johnson. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Ambassador Kraft, welcome. Uh, I also share my congratulations and apologize for not being here sooner. Uh, we held a markup in my Homeland Security Committee where we passed a pretty important piece of legislation that would end government shutdowns. You know, just put us on an uh, automatic glide path with some real deterrent uh, for members to make sure that there are discipline for members to actually pass appropriation bills. So that's why I'm late. Um, uh, I, I'm assuming based on our uh, meeting yesterday, I, I enjoyed our meeting, appreciate you taking the time that uh, we put the travel issue well behind us here. Uh, so the points I wanted to make is I, I, I find it interesting that you were an alternate delegate to the UN General Assembly. I've had that honor three times to be a representative uh, representing the Senate. Uh, hope to be one in the future, uh, potentially under your, your ambassadorship. So the point I would, what I'd like to, to make is 
as many problems as we have in the UN, and there, there are many. It's also a pretty important forum for world leaders to get together and just discuss their issues, understand each other's perspectives. Uh, I found that uh, opportunity uh, very valuable, being able to get to the UN and, and put together some very high-level meetings in a very efficient time period. So as ambassador, I would just ask you to utilize that mission if, if I am another representative to uh, set up those meetings and so we can, again, understand those perspectives of, of world leaders. Yes, sir. I think that's why, why it's why the UN is so important, especially during General Assembly, is that we have, you know, we, we celebrate the freedom of expression. And uh, I think that's why everybody will be there. They will have the freedom to express. We'll have the freedom to meet with one another. And it's really important to be able to have some of these face-to-face, one-on-one, and understand better their needs and issues. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the climate change issue. Uh, from a standpoint of priorities, and that, again, with the UN is a far from perfect organization, but there are things that it does and things that we need it to do, and we need to do them well. Uh, from my standpoint, I think one of the missions of the UN is to try and alleviate human suffering. And I think when we talk about climate change, we're, we're talking about potentially alleviating human suffering caused by, you know, weather and uh, the effects of, of potential climate change. And by the way, climate is always changing. Are you familiar with the Bjorn Lombard's Copenhagen Consensus? Um, Senator, he's a friend of ours. Good. Yes. <laughs> so he, he completely believes in man-made climate change. I may be a bit more skeptical in terms of man's total of impact. Um, but he also understands that there are limited resources. And if your goal is to alleviate human suffering, there's far better ways of spending limited human resources. For example, uh, PEPFAR digging wells, uh, killing mosquitoes so you prevent malaria. Uh, so I guess I would just ask you in, in your position as UM ambassador to take a look at the priorities. Recognize we have limited resources and doing everything you can to help the UN reform itself so it concentrates on those things that are most effective, both, both cost efficiency wise, but also effective at allevi alleviating human suffering. Yes, sir, you have my word, and that's why it's so important that not only as a steward of, of our taxpayer, Amer American taxpayer, I feel responsible for the countries also that are contributing because we want them to see success, and we want them to have skin in the game, and when they feel successful and they feel like they're part of success and they're part of making a difference in the hundreds of thousands of lives that are desperate, then we're going to have, I hope, more and more countries on board and, you know, if not for the UN and all of the organizations and the fact that we are the leaders, where would all of these people be? And I'm a strong believer in knowing that we can use the UN for American leadership, this as our platform to really stress to other countries, step up, we need, we need you. This is about human dignity. And I give you my word if confirmed that I will be a huge advocate for transparency and for making certain that our dollars are not spent in the UN system, but spent in the field helping the very people who are desperate for humanitarian aid. Well, I appreciate that. I primarily came here just to express my support for your nomination. Thank you for your past services, uh, Ambassador to Canada, for helping negotiating what I think is an incredibly important uh, trade deal, the USMCA. And just thank you for your willingness to serve in this future capacity. So thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
Thank, Thank you, you, Senator. Sen Thank you, Senator Johnson. Senator Young. Hello, uh, Ambassador. I am so grateful for your past service as well and, and uh, excited uh, that uh, uh, you are prepared to take on this new role. I wanted to ask you, I, you know, there's been a lot in the news about recent events with Iran and the Gulf. Do you believe that current legal authority exists uh, for the United States to go to war with Iran? Thank you, Senator, and thank you for the time to meet uh, last week. Um, I believe that we need to show deterrence. I mean, if you look at Iran and their corrosive behavior, their behavior has not changed, which has been very apparent by the recent actions. Um, you know, we have to really be concerned about their participation in Yemen. You know, they are continually to supply military intervention to the Houthi rebels. We have a crisis there with hundreds of thousands of people starving. Yes. And with um, our strategic partner in the Middle East, Saudi Arabia, and their led coalition in Yemen, this has helped the World Food Program with access to the hundreds of thousands of people. I mean, you've got Iran propping up the Assad regime, turning a blind eye. I mean, Iran's a, a very bad imagine? actor, I mean, you've got, leading you've got, state sponsor of terror. I'm sorry to in, in, no. interject here. My time's somewhat limited, though. Uh, so, um, yes, uh, we, we absolutely need to show deterrence vis-a-vis mm -hmm. -vis Iran. Uh, we need to deal with the worst humanitarian crisis since the late 50s uh, in China, which is in Yemen, as you very correctly pointed out. And um, we need to work with our partners and allies uh, to ensure that uh, Iran doesn't continue its adventurous and, and dangerous behavior, putting our service members, our assets, uh, and uh, the global economy uh, at risk. Uh, but do you believe we have the legal authority to go to war with Iran? Under Article One, Section 8 of the Constitution, uh, it says that Congress declares war. Uh, there's an existing authorization for the use of military force dated back to 2001. Uh, my own belief is, is that before uh, the United States were to go to war with Iran, uh, we, Congress would have to be briefed about the justification for that, and uh, Congress would, would need to vote on that matter. Thank you, Senator, for, for that raising this particular issue. You know, I understand that w when we have an imminent threat, the president makes this decision. If not that, then I also understand, and I know the importance of consulting with Congress when it comes to something as important as this decision. So absent an imminent threat, you, you agree that um, uh, a vote by Congress would be required to authorize you. I agree that we, we, yes, I agree we need to be consulting with Congress. This is a very important decision that affects the lives of not just Americans, but of a lot of innocent people. Okay. I, I want that consultation to be followed up, just for the record, uh, with a vote by, by Congress under Article One of the Constitution. So we'll look forward to working with the State Department and the National Security Advisor and, and the President and others on that important matter. Um, the United States, uh, Ms. Ambassador, is, is underrepresented among the professional staff of the United Nations, something you no doubt have been briefed on. How do you plan to address this if you are confirmed? Thank you, Senator. You know, I think we need to highlight the successes of the areas where we are represented by Americans, whether it's UNICEF, the world, you know, with, with Henrietta Ford, UNICEF with Governor Beasley, 
Uh, we just have uh, someone appointed through the ICC to investigate and to gather and keep the information in Burma with Rohingya refugees, which is so vitally important. And I feel very confident in knowing that when we have an American and we can show that there is greater transparency, which, which provides accountability and obviously more effectiveness, that throughout the UN system, and this is an issue that I will bring up with Secretary Guterres, we are underrepresented, we are underrepresented. And I understand that with the percentage of our contribution level, we are nowhere near having the Americans in the system. And if we need to be very cognitive of the fact that China is placing their individuals being hired throughout the system, and that is a real issue. So my, clearly you understand my concern. Oh, yes, I do. And, and, and that thematically is very much linked to my concern about um, the U.S. withdrawal from certain U.N. organizations that's, that's coinciding with Chinese expansion in the multilateral fora. Um, I don't disagree with, with withdrawal from, say, the, the Human Rights Council. Uh, there's only so long that you can remain a member of that organization uh, when you have gross violators of, of human rights that call, uh, call themselves members and, and try and affect change from within. So I actually think it was the right decision. But I also have concerns, there's a little tension here, that China is seeking to now shape the world's human rights and other agendas with its particular viewpoint through that very organization. Um, so how can the United States effectively challenge China's view of human rights and, and perhaps challenge its rival economic system at the United Nations? Thank you, Senator. That, obviously, that's something we discussed in your office, and that's really important. You know, China is the second largest contributor now at the UN. We are still the leader, and we will be. Uh, we have to keep in mind that because of their economy is why they now have stepped up in contributing as a second largest contributor. They also have ulterior motives and they're looking for leverage. They're looking for leverage within the UN system, within the other 192 member states, especially the underdeveloped countries. You know, they're taking their belt and road initiative and I understand we cannot match that dollar per dollar and thank you for everybody here for the BUILD Act. And I think it's really important that we focus on areas that we can negate China in underdeveloped countries with our BUILD Act, with public-private partnerships, with leaving people with sustainability, not with uh, predatory lending. So I understand your concern and share your concern. And if, if confirmed, I will most certainly develop the relationships within the UN body to make certain that the smaller countries understand we're here for you. We're here to help you with longevity, to build communities. China is not. Well, I'm, I'm chairman of the Multilateral Institution Subcommittee here on Foreign Relations, so I will um, have oversight over um, all of these matters, really, and I look forward to supporting you in your efforts and uh, working together so that we can, uh, we can create a broader and deeper coalitions and then apply our collective leverage against China's uh, predatory economic practices, uh, against uh, gross human rights violators, so we don't normalize uh, the, the sort of human rights uh, violations uh, that uh, others might attempt to normalize in this uh, international forum. So uh, thank you once again for your past service and your interest in serving, and I look forward to our work together. Mr. Chairman? Thank you, Senator. Senator Menendez. Thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman.
Uh, Madam Ambassador, let me just say uh, for the record, I, I supported your nomination. I don't, I don't support everybody who comes before this committee. I supported expediting your nomination for a business committee meeting. And I supported your nomination on the floor of the United States Senate. So I, even though you're a political uh, uh, appointee, meant nothing to me. So uh, I hold no ill will. But my job as the ranking member is to vet every candidate that comes before us. So in that spirit, I, let me just take my line of questioning a little further. You know, there's an old adage that if, uh, as a lawyer, if you have the facts on your side, you argue the facts. If you have the law on your side, you argue the law. And if you have neither the facts nor the law, you bang on the table and create a diversion. Now, Senator Cruz is a very good lawyer. Uh, the problem with his line of questioning is that the State Department told us that the 300 days that I've questioned you about was reported as 300 days outside of Canada. It did not include travel inside of Canada. So that line of questioning to suggest that a good part of this is you were traveling in Canada and you should be traveling in Canada, I have no dispute that you should be traveling in Canada, but the 300 days was travel outside of Canada, not because I say it, but because the State Department says it. So uh, I look at that and I see that the new USMCA negotiations were completed at the end of September 2018. Yet as you can see from the chart, your absences from post seem to only increase in frequency after the time of the negotiations being completed. How do you explain that? Senator, while we may have reached the deadline of September 30th of 2018 for USMCA, there were many more conversations we were having to iron out issues that we agreed upon at that last hour on September 30th that we would continue to speak about. I can tell you now that I did not enjoy living out of a suitcase. You know, we had finally made our residence in Ottawa a home just in time that I had to pack up bags and go back and forth. That was no fun. But I took my oath of office very seriously in understanding that I'm available 24 seven. Well, wherever, I'm, I beg your pardon, I'm let sorry. Let me ask you then in pursuit of that, I'm sure you didn't enjoy living out of a brief uh, suitcase, but there were five rounds of negotiations that occurred after you became ambassador in October 2017. Yet it appears from the summary provided by the State Department that you only attended one of those five rounds. Are those records correct? No, sir. The, round, the rounds that occurred in Washington were continuous. And these were, this was, I did attend the round in Montreal because I, as did I. Did you attend all five rounds of negotiations? No, sir. That no, sir. I, no, sir. I did not. did not. I attended the round in Montreal. This, this, is, this is why we need the information. So hope, hopefully, I'm not sure we will can get past this issue because this is a global stage you're going to be on. This is, Canada's a really important assignment. This is a global stage. There are huge global issues. There is no more important position I can think of other than the Secretary of State than the U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations. And as someone who has practiced foreign policy for 27 years in Congress, this is real important to me. I know what it means. So that's why I'm pursuing this. You, you know, First thing is you need to be there in order to meet the challenges. So I have to understand that better, and I hope we can get to that point that I do. I have some final questions on substance. Let me ask you, uh, you, you said in response to Senator Graham, uh, that, or he was asking about Iraq, you said you're gonna follow the president's policy. I understand that. But President Trump has made a, a whole host of disparaging comments about UN member states. 
In tweets, he's referred to the Canadian Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, as very dishonest and weak. He's called Europe a total mess. He said that Germany is a captive of Russia. Do you agree with those statements? Senator, the, the President has his own way of communicating. Um, I can assure you that my relationships that I will build, if confirmed, at the UN. I understand, believe me, I'm painfully aware of the President's form of communicating. The question is, do you believe in those statements? Yes or no? This is a gotcha question, and I'm not, I'm not going not to go gotcha there. What question. I believe you're, in. You're going to be at the United Nations. You're going to be on the Security Council and at the General Assembly with a whole host of the countries. You're going to have to work through these things. So if at a simple thing you can say, I don't, I don't personally believe that, it's a challenge, right? I can assure you that I will be speaking with ev to everyone with utmost respect in representing Let me ask the United you, States. If you're confirmed, can you pledge that you will not use your post as ambassador to the United Nations to provide diplomatic protection for Saudi Arabia, but use your voice and your vote to raise concerns about the conduct of the Saudi-led coalition in Yemen, to press for accountability on the brutal murder of Jamal Khashoggi, to end the fact that uh, the Saudis use child soldiers? Senator, I can give you my word that I don't care who it is, what country it is, if there is a human rights abuse, I will most certainly shine the light, you know, call them out, however you want to put it. You right. can guarantee that I will be the first there to say this has to stop. I appreciate that. But specifically as to my question as to the Saudis, will you use your voice and your vote uh, in these instances to stand up for what you're telling me more globally? You use your voice and your vote to stand up to uh, express the concerns. There's a huge humanitarian uh, catastrophe going on in, in Yemen. There is clearly the murder of a journalist that needs to be addressed. There is clearly the use of child soldiers, which I know in your heart as a mother you cannot even believe is something that should be used. So will you use your voice and your vote in that regard? Senator, I will use my voice when Saudi Arabia commits human rights abuses. You better believe I will be using my voice. Right, thank you. Now, lastly, lastly, I'm going to submit a whole bunch of questions for the record, and I look forward to substantive responses from you and maybe a follow-up visit. Sure. Uh, you've mentioned very well, by the way, the question of humanitarian uh, issues. And when you, uh, you shared the same story you shared previously with me about the Rohingya, and the first time you met anybody from the Rohingyas uh, with Senator Gardner. Uh, what is the role you believe, the, we have the greatest displacement since World War II of people in the world. Over 70 million people displaced because they flee violence, oppression, persecution. What do you believe is the role that we should be playing as it relates to dealing with that challenge? <coughs> Dealing with the Rohingya challenge specifically? Well, uh, Rohingya, but beyond. The 70 million people who are displaced in the world who are, in essence, refugees. What, what, is the, what is the role that you would advocate as the U.S. ambassador at the U.N.? What should we be doing and leading on? Senator, I, uh, I understand the emotions because I feel the same way about this issue as, as we discussed in your office. I can't fathom from looking at these children what it must be like for a mother to feel so desperate to have to leave their country, or worse, put an innocent child in the hands of a human smuggler, thinking they're gonna go to the promised land, 
And that is why it is so important at the U.S. that we be very vigilant in, with our humanitarian aid, that we demand for transparency, because as you know, our dollars have to be spent very wisely. These are people. We have to remember they are people. They're not just refugees or migrants or immigrants. They're people. And I can pledge to you that I will use everything in my power to make certain that the U.S. is always the first on the ground and the last to leave. I appreciate that. I would just uh, say to you, it would be helpful if you're confirmed in your advocacy within this administration. One of the things we should be doing is admitting some more refugees. We are at the lowest level in our nation's history of accepting refugees. You can't lead in the world at the UN and advocate for other countries to do what we, we fail to do ourselves. And so this is a challenge that you will find at many different moments. How you work your way through that challenge is going to be incredibly important as how successful you can be on behalf of the United States of America. And uh, I look forward to some of the answers to the questions I'm posing in writing. Thank you very much. Thank you, Senator. Thank you, Senator Menendez. Uh, Ambassador Kraft, thank you very much. Uh, you've been very patient uh, with all of us and uh, appreciate your uh, testimony. Uh, the record will remain open until the close of business on Thursday. And uh, with that, this meeting is adjourned. <laughs>